Welcome friends to Pilgrimage. Uh, this is our first video presentation. We'll be meeting a little bit later on. Uh, you'll have those details in the email along with the invite to the Zoom uh, for some discussion and for talking about the presentation. Uh, but thanks for taking the time. Uh, today, as we look at uh, an introduction to faith, as we look at an introduction to uh, the way of uh, Jesus through the lens of the Episcopal Church. We're going to talk a little bit about scripture. Uh, we're going to talk about the Bible. So I'm going to mostly be sharing my screen through this. So um, I'm looking forward to talking with you. So again, this is Pilgrimage and welcome to Pilgrimage. Today we're talking about scripture. We're talking about the Bible. And we're going to be talking in this particular class about how we read and how we hold the Bible. Today, we're going to talk a lot about the structure of the Bible. But before we get to the structure, I like to begin by talking a little bit about what we think the Bible is. And this is maybe the most contested part of the question uh, in the Christian world. Uh, it's, it's how we hold the Bible, how we read the Bible, what we think the Bible is, what we think the authority of the Bible is and how the Bible gets that authority. And that may be the most fraught question that's really behind all of the other questions that the church fights about. What is the authority of scripture? And really, how does that authority come about? So we're going to unpack that a little bit in discussion with one another. But I really like to start in the beginning. If we were in the group, I would say, what comes to mind if I say the phrase, the word of God? And we would talk about, you know, all the different things that come to mind with the word of God and the, the Bible. Uh, is the word of God, the idea of divine inspiration, that, that God speaks scripture into being. But the Bible itself, in the text itself, the word of God is two things that isn't encapsulated in that big discussion about scripture, that isn't, it doesn't have any stake in this idea about, you know, what scripture is and what its authority is. The beginning of scripture starts with an account of creation, the first chapter of Genesis. And in Genesis, God speaks and the world comes into being. We're going to read through this chapter of Genesis in the next video, but it's important to note that God's word it doesn't just become fossilized in a text. God's word is living and active. The book of Hebrews puts it. God's word is spoken and light and darkness come into being. God's word is spoken and the day and the night are divided. God's word is spoken and the world is formed and filled with life and life in abundance. And at the end of all of it, God says, it is good, it is good, it is very good. So God's word is 
more powerful than a dusty book sitting on a shelf. God's word is what animates and creates and, and holds the universe in its being. That's one of the stakes of God's word. And in that sense, it's, it's bigger than any written words on the page. There's this idea in the Hebrew text that God's word is more than we could ever write down. It's that which gives life. And by the time you get around to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, and the community of Jesus followers that were identified with that gospel, the word has been identified with this idea in Greek thought, word, logos. And John's gospel begins, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things came into being through the word. Without the word, not one thing came into being. Every time you heard that word in Greek, it's the word logos. It's that root for logic, that supreme ideal of the Greeks. But it's this, this again, animating force behind creation, this living force in the midst of life, that word that is living and active. And in John's gospel, the next line is the kicker. Because John tells us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The force behind all of creation, that through which God created all things, was born in human form and likeness. There's this idea that Jesus is the word of God. Christ is the word of God. And a whole life speaks God's word. And a whole movement speaks God's word. It's bigger than what get, gets written down on the page. It is Christ's presence is God's word. So I like to start there because it, it both changes the stakes, in some ways lowers them, but also raises them. <laughs> uh, I think for a lot of us, particularly folks that come from an evangelical tradition, uh, where you know the inheritors of Martin Luther and Sola Scriptura, this idea that the Bible is this ultimate litmus test, it's important to back up a little bit. Uh, my old boss, uh, my my rector in Washington used to like to say, um, if you come to the Bible looking for a book of directions, plural, you're always going to lose. But if you come looking for direction, singular, the Bible can be a great place to start. If you come looking for a book of directions, you're always going to lose. The Bible is not going to tell us what to do with social media. The Bible is written in a particular time and setting and life, and it, it doesn't know how to answer a lot of our modern questions. And the Bible doesn't know what to say about vaccination. It just didn't, the people who wrote it didn't have that in their world. But the Bible has the capacity to continue to inform and inspire and help us to see 
the way our ancestors saw God's presence among us, God's call to us, God's expressed desire to care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, those on the margins, those on the edges, what the book of Hebrews, I'm quoting Hebrews a lot, what the book of Hebrews calls those who are outside the city gates. Scripture has the capacity to continue to inspire us. I'm going to quote Presbyterians here, which is a rare thing for me as an Episcopalian, but the Presbyterians uh, have a way of responding to scripture in their uh, tradition. And after the reading is done, just in the Episcopal church, when a reading is done, the reader says the word of the Lord and the people say, thanks be to God. Uh, and before the reading, they'll say, you know, a reading from the book of Moses, or that's not a good example, a reading from the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, uh, the books of Moses, we'll get to in a minute, a reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, or a reading from Paul's letter to the Romans. But in the Presbyterian Church USA, sometimes they'll say a reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, listen for the word, capital W, among the words, lowercase w. That is to say that we're listening for God's presence. We're listening for the word of God, which gives life to the world in and amongst the words of scripture. So I'd like to start with in the beginning was the word, but let's talk for a little bit about structure. I just, I find that people don't always understand exactly what the Bible is. Uh, if we were sitting together in a classroom right now, I'd be asking you the question. So I'll ask you and I'll let you think on it for a second. Hold your answer in your head. What does the Bible translate to? Just that word Bible. Where do we get that word? You might be surprised. The word Bible comes from the Greek for library. The Bible isn't just one book. The Bible is a collection of books. And the first Bible as we know it, uh, was actually put together, leg the, the legend is that it was put together by the uh, Jewish people living in Egypt for the library at Alexandria. You got this picture here of the scriptorum in Alexandria, this great collection of the ancient world of tradition and of wisdom and of teaching. And the idea was that the original Bible was a Greek translation of Hebrew for the library at Alexandria. But it was a collection of all of the books. They, they took a lot of separate schools and bound them together, translated them and put them in Greek. And that's the first Bible. So it's a little more complicated than that, but just start with this. Bible means library. It's not one book, but many books. And on a level, we all know that. You know, the basic structure of the Bible, most people could tell you uh, Old Testament, New Testament. Well, these days we like to talk about the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Hebrew Bible because it's not an old Bible. It, it is the Bible for the Jewish people today. So we don't like to call it the Old Testament because it's a little bit pejorative to call it Old Testament. But basically that piece of the scriptures likes to, uh, we like to say it covers everything from creation to the Maccabean period. 
So several thousand years of history in the biblical worldview or you know, several million years of history according to modern science, but the Hebrew Bible is everything up to the Maccabean period. The New Testament is the collections of writings about Jesus and the early church. New Testament covers far less ground, really, you know, maybe 90 years. The Hebrew Bible covers centuries, eons, you know, huge amounts of time. But it gets more complicated than just the two pieces. It's not just a collection of two books. The Bible is more. So the first part of scripture, the Hebrew Bible, uh, can be broken down into three more parts. And probably the best known among those is the Torah, the five books of Moses. Sometimes we're gonna tell you, you know, reading from the book of Moses. You can't have a reading from the book of Moses because there are actually five books of Moses. These are the holy scriptures that our Jewish siblings read today in synagogue. And these are the most important. They're bound together in one long scroll uh, and read sequentially throughout the Jewish liturgical year. Uh, and these books in Hebrew, the, the sort of way that you name things in Hebrew is generally from the first word. So Genesis begins Bereshit. So it's known as Bereshit, uh, God created in the beginning. Uh, Shemot, Exodus, Vayikra, uh, and he called Leviticus, Bamidbar in the desert, uh, Devarim, the things or words, Deuteronomy. I wanted to give you a little sense of the Hebrew there uh, because it's important to note the Bible wasn't written in the King James English. There's that old joke about uh, the old lady who says, well, if the King James Bible was good enough for St. Paul, it's good enough for me. Yeah, the Bible was not written in King James Egypt in King James English. The original compositions of the ancient texts were in Hebrew. The first Bible to be bound up uh, was in uh, Greek, Koine Greek, specifically in Egypt. But the Torah is not the whole of the um, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the Hebrew Bible, if you look at it on balance, is quite a bit more, quite a bit thicker than the New Testament. You also have the Nevi'im. Nevi'im is Hebrew for the prophets. So that's the big prophets like Isaiah, the little prophets like Hosea, uh, but it's also writings like Joshua, Kings, First and Second Samuel, Judges, the, the idea of the prophetic period of Hebrew, uh, of the Israel people, people of Israel. And then there's also this catch-all, uh, the ketuvim. Uh, those are the Psalms. Psalms are the oldest book in the Bible. Uh, generally, we think that Psalms, the, the songs, the hymns, when scholars see something that looks musical or looks poetic, they tend to think it's very old, very early in scripture. Because remember, these books, these stories, before they were written down, they were told around campfires. It's important to remember that these stories that get, get passed down by a nomadic people at first, these stories get passed down before they get written down. The story of Abraham and the stars would have been told around a campfire again and again and again before it was ever written down. And so the Psalms, the Proverbs, these 
quippy little sayings, things that are easy to remember, or these songs that have lyric and structure that would have been easy to remember. They are among the oldest, scholars think, parts of scripture. Then there's other things that just don't fit in the Torah or with the prophets, things like Job that also go into the Ketuvim. So it's more complicated than just two parts. But wait, there's more. It gets even more complicated. Remember how I said that the first scripture that was written down was in Greek in Egypt, supposedly for the library in Alexandria. Well, that was called the Septuagint for the number of books. Uh, the Hebrew Bible, it didn't become canon in the way that we know it. Uh, there's a big moment in the life of scripture. It's in the year 70 AD. Uh, the Roman Empire knocks down the temple, the temple that Jesus spent all that time walking around and teaching about and teaching in. The Roman Empire knocks down the temple, and it's a sort of last great insult to the Jewish people, the people of Israel. And it's this turning point in scripture. Uh, we tend to date books in the New Testament based on whether the writer seems to know that the temple had fallen or was going to fall. But it doesn't just change Christianity. The destruction of the temple changes the life of Judaism. And a religion that had been very focused on making pilgrimage to Jerusalem on sacrifice on you know, a temple religion becomes a religion of the book as the prophet Muhammad would have it. Uh, the Jewish people become a people of a book. And so around the time after the destruction of the temple, the, you know, the Council of Jamnia the, in 100 is the idea, but right around the turn of the first and second century common era after Jesus uh, is when the Hebrew canon, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim comes together. Before that, though, there was the Septuagint, an unofficial scripture, and that's what Jesus would have had. When Jesus quotes the Bible, and well, A, Jesus is speaking Greek because the whole of the New Testament was written down in Koine Greek, but Jesus is quoting prophets and scripture in a way that we know that it's a it's the Septuagint, it's the Greek version. Because of the specific word choices and the, we, we know that it, Jesus knows scripture in translation and it would have been the Bible that was around and available at Jesus's time. So the, he, the trick about the Septuagint though is there are extra books. You may have noticed that um, in the Episcopal church we have something called the Apocrypha. It's, it's what Roman Catholics and Orthodox Christians have it. And the Protestants and evangelicals don't have the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanon. So in the collection that was for the library, in the Greek Septuagint, there were additional books and additional parts of books. Tobit, Judith, Baruch, Sirach, First and Second Maccabees, Wisdom, and then there were additional parts of Esther, Daniel, and Baruch. So sometimes the Catholics get accused of having an inaccurate Bible by evangelicals that are making fun of Catholics. But it's more complicated than that. Uh, those books were part of the Christian tradition up until 500 years ago, when the Protestant reformers looked at what they were reading in the synagogue versus what was in the Bible and said, well, these books aren't part of the Jewish canon and kicked them out. 
so it's really complicated. It, we even fight over what books count, what's in the Bible. So that's a lot about the Hebrew Bible. Let's jump into the New Testament. New Testament covers a lot less ground. And so thankfully it's a little bit less complicated. Uh, you have the writings of Paul, which are the earliest writings, the letters of Paul. Uh, then there's scholars like to point out these days, there are what are thought of as authentic letters of Paul, like Romans. And then there are Deuteropauline, letters that claim to be of Paul, but are not, scholars think, they weren't actually written by Paul, they were written by somebody who was a follower of Paul. That was a conceit, especially around the time of Jesus, that you would claim an important person as the author, even if it wasn't them who put pen to paper. It lent your document credibility. That was a normal thing to do, and sort of reverse plagiarism, give somebody else credit for your work. It was a normal thing to do uh, in the first century in the Roman Empire. And so uh, there are books that claim to be written by Paul that probably weren't written by Paul. Uh, their structure, their what they know, it sort of doesn't make sense that Paul would have written it. And there's all this other stuff too. There are other letters like the letters of Peter, the three letters of John. There's Revelation, which is sort of a category of its own. There's the book of Hebrews, which sort of looks like a letter. It's one of those things they think of as Deuteropauline sometimes in terms of it wasn't written by Paul, but sometimes it's claimed as the letter of Paul to the Hebrews. Hebrews is probably actually a early church sermon. And, and I did everything else first because the heart of the, be, the beginning of the New Testament are the gospels. There are four of them, which I find fascinating in and of itself. There are four different accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. Think about that for a second. I think sometimes as Christians, it can be an easy thing to just sort of sit with this. Like, of course there are. There's always been four Gospels. My grandmother read four Gospels. Of course there are four Gospels. But think about it as somebody who might be new to the faith. This isn't just one book. This isn't just one account of God and God's people. The very beginning of Genesis has two different accounts of creation that we'll look at next time. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has four different accounts that don't always line up. Matthew, Mark, and Luke line up quite a bit. They're called synoptic because the synopsis of each is the same. Stuff happens in roughly the same order. But even they will sometimes put one moment in Jesus's life and ministry in a different place than what happened in, uh, you know, Matthew will say something happened before Mark does. John is on another planet. If the three synoptics have roughly the same synopsis, John is just somewhere else entirely. In John, time has more of a mystical meaning than a literal meaning, which is good because Jesus's ministry lasts longer in John and, and is more complex and Jesus travels a lot more, but, but for John, it's mystical. I remember that in the beginning was the word. In John's gospel, Jesus almost glows in the dark and floats off the ground. One of my uh, seminary professors used to say, for John, the mystical power of God is so present in Jesus and Jesus 
speaks in these mystical teachings. John's pretty different. And then the other thing that I will count as gospel is Acts. Because Acts is not like the rest of, uh, it's not like the Pauline letters, it's not like Revelation. Acts really has the structure of a gospel. And, and it even in the text, it's very clear, Acts is volume two of Luke's gospel. It, for whatever reason, when we put scripture together, they didn't put them back to back. They should have and put it John first, then Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts or something. But, um, but Acts is volume two. It begins with, in the first volume, Theophilus, I told you about Jesus. In the second volume, it begins with the ascension. And then Acts, my, one of my seminary professors used to say, is the gospel of the Holy Spirit. It's the story of God and the early church and the way God is active and moving in the earliest uh, followers of the Jesus movement. So you got a lot of different genres, you got a lot of different books, you even have different viewpoints, different understandings of who Jesus is. The Bible is not one static book of answers. It is a pretty wild and woolly collection of stories. And even the folks that put scripture together had to have known, you can't come to the Bible looking for one answer. You can't come to the Bible looking to prove one thing because the Bible contradicts itself. Different authors that are included in this library have different viewpoints. But the Bible has within it a surprising capacity to tell the story of people who are able to discern God living and active in their life and to discern that God had a stake in the way we live, the way we move, the way we have our being, as St. Paul would say. So that brings me back to where we started in a bit. At the beginning we talked about was the word, the word of God. And maybe one of the most difficult things for some folks who come to the Episcopal church is the way that scripture has been used in traditions they've been a part of before. Uh, scripture has been used as a litmus test, as a shibboleth, as this, you must believe in the full authority of scripture. The word that sometimes gets quoted is that it is divine writ, uh, that, that God's finger almost came down and carved it into the tablets. <sighs> And that's a tricky idea, honestly. It's, it's a pretty new innovation in the life of the church. That really is more of an Islamic understanding of the Quran because it, the Quran begins with the word recite. And supposedly the Quran is the words that God gave directly to the prophet Muhammad and the prophet Muhammad you know, served as the uh, as the divine dictaphone, as the one who first remembered all of God's words and then wrote them all down. That's more of an Islamic idea of scripture. Christian understandings of scripture have really never been that God spoke the words and the people wrote them down. Maybe the Ten Commandments of Moses, that's as close as it gets though, and that's, you know, one piece of one chapter. The other extreme 
is that this is just a fully human document. It's just a document that comes from a very particular time and place. And probably a lot of it is out of date and reflects the biases of its time. And, you know, we might be able to get a thing or two from it, but mostly that, you know, Bible belongs in a museum. You can go that way with it too. I know folks who have, but you can also see biblical inspiration, not as just something that happens once, not as just God's finger holding the pen through the hand of the person writing scripture, but that God's inspiration, the word inspire, it's to breathe, to breathe in. It relates to, you know, respiration. That these books continue to have a life of their own. It kind of amazes me. There seems to be books of the Bible that become important for folks. That, that you know, right now, there are a whole bunch of people reading the book of Ruth. Um, it's interesting to me right now, you know, the, as I as I do this session, we're getting ready to read the story of the epiphany, the story of this tyrannical ruler uh, and the magi that come and alert him that some big thing has happened and Herod, the tyrant, uh, comes to, you know, come after Jesus. It's, it's interesting to me the way in which these books can continue to have a life. These stories can continue to help us see and frankly, you know, breathe. The other thing that's interesting when you think about divine inspiration, if you take this idea that God might continue to inspire us even as we read the scripture, you can also look back across the centuries at the Christian community and the Jewish community for whom these stories have been scripture. You can read old sermons. You can listen to the wisdom of the early church. You can see the way in which for centuries now, people have struggled with these stories, with these words. And yet in among the words, they have found the word. They have found something in scripture that has spoken to their life in a way that brings life in a way that brings creativity, in a way that at its best might call us to justice. So that is my crash course in the structure of the Bible. We're gonna get into it a little bit more next time. Uh, we'll take a look at some specific texts. We'll look, take a look at some surprising texts. But for now, the takeaway is this is a pretty complex library, a pretty complex document. After you listen to this, I'd really encourage you or, or, or watch and, and follow along with me on the presentation. I would really encourage you uh, to go to the email I sent, go to the pilgrimage page or go to the comments below on YouTube if you're watching on YouTube and click the link to listen uh, to Dr. Ellen Davis talk about scripture. It's a shorter video than this, but I find it really inspiring uh, the way that this Episcopal professor talks about scripture. I look forward to talking in our class. See you soon.